The Start On Demand. On demand. Results are in, and it's not good for Winnipeg. Statistics Canada releasing its crime severity index from across the country, and Winnipeg leads the nation in violent crime, third overall when it comes to crime in general. Also, it's the 20th anniversary of the debut of the Pan Am Games in Winnipeg, so we'll go down memory lane with a Winnipeg gold medalist. How far is too far for smart technology? The latest wave? Smart diapers. And one of the many concerts in Winnipeg this week was, on Monday night, the Backstreet Boys at Bell MTS Place. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, July 23rd podcast for The Start. Thank you very much, Tristan Field-Jones. Mackling and McGarry McNabb is away for a little while. And Mackling, I am hoping that this is not going to be one of those days. One of what days? Well, I can't. It's, it's, I'm already having some problems here this morning. I'm trying to get into 680CJOB's Instagram. Uh-oh. Because I like to update our story to let people know what we have coming up in the show. And I know a lot of people who know when you are away. <laughs> They will text me. They will say, is Brett on holidays? <laughs> yes. Why do you ask? Well, the Instagram story hasn't been updated, and I don't know what you're going to talk about on the show. <laughs> yeah, so it's not working. I can't get into it. I can get onto my Instagram, and if you want to follow me there, great. At Brett McGarry, but every time I try to switch over to the CJOB, it just crashes. So... I'm off to a bad start. All right. Well, let's put that aside. Yes. Maybe don't touch the handheld equipment today. Yeah, and I was I was just joking, like, you know, this this will at one, it'll make my morning a lot easier. Because <laughs> I'm always on that thing between in breaks and stuff trying to figure out what to put up next. And it will at least help me untether myself momentarily from the phone. Cause and I'm I, I swear to God, we talked a few weeks back about how we're all growing horns out of the back of our neck. <laughs> yes. Because we're constantly looking down at Are our phone. Are you getting them? My neck is always sore. And it's because I'm always staring at my phone to the point now where I when I go outside sometimes I'll like I'll put my uh my elbow on my hand, kind of hold my my arm sort of across my chest. And then I'll hold my phone <laughs> in front of my face so I don't have to look down because my neck is always sore. I was thinking about that yesterday and the posture that I was using and I made a total adjustment, but I have not yet tried the human tripod method. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe I will try that today at some point. That's really actually quite brilliant, Brett. I like that. I'm going to give that a go. But I got, I celebrated a little bit because I got my weekly screen time report from my iPhone. Oh. It'll tell me how much time I've spent on my screen. Okay. And I was down 12% last week. Oh, wow. So I give myself a pat on the back for that. How do you, do you is that like It just pops up. No, it's just part of the iPhone. And uh, I didn't really like it at first because it, ugh, the number is kind of scary. I won't tell you how many hours per day I'm averaging on this thing. All I'm going to tell you is that I'm down 12% last week, unlike crime in Winnipeg, which is sort of the antithesis of that. It's almost like you planned that segue. I, and I didn't. <laughs> Until I was halfway through it. I, oh, I know I can go with this. Greg's down 12 and Winnipeg's up 12. Yeah, basically. That's the that's uh, more or less the number. And if you really dig deep, uh, some of the numbers of violent crime, uh, property crime is up even higher than that. And Winnipeg not only finds itself at the top of the CFL standings, but on top of the uh, crime stats in Canada as well. So how does that, when you, you heard that, I mean, you, you had heard some rumblings of what we might see in terms of a spike in numbers, and did those numbers end up on par with what you had heard? No, no the, the numbers that we got yesterday were a little bit less than what I'd been hearing, uh, but they were on that same trajectory, bothersome, uh, and to the point where... Uh, we're going to ask a couple of different questions today. Uh, one has to do with the provincial election. Another has to do with, does this define our city? 
And, you know, I mentioned the Blue Bombers and the fact that they're on top of the standings. Well, the biggest story right now at globalnews.ca and cjob.com by a mile is the fact that Winnipeg Blue Bombers receiver Chris Matthews was stabbed at a downtown restaurant on Saturday. So talk about, you know, you want to talk about segues. That's uh, a segue I don't know that uh, we could have possibly written and certainly didn't want to see. Yeah, Chris Matthews was stabbed at uh, La Roca, which is a great Mexican restaurant on Smith Street. I love going there. The food is just delicious. This happened early Sunday morning at around 2 o'clock. There was some sort of a commotion. He's okay. He was at practice yesterday. Mm-hmm. He's on the, the one-game uh, injured reserve, and he didn't uh, speak to the media yesterday. La Roca did issue a statement saying, as you are aware... There was a physical altercation that took place shortly after 2 a.m. Sunday morning at La Roca. Some have prematurely reported this as a stabbing. The altercation was between a Winnipeg Blue Bomber player and other patrons. The altercation was diffused quickly by our security team, and all parties involved were asked to vacate the premises. Our security protocols following a physical altercation include requesting the attendance of the Winnipeg Police Service, Shortly after the altercation, the player left the building through the front doors and was engaged by the WPS. After security camera footage review by the WPS, no person is being charged in relation to this altercation. We appreciate your patience while we investigate the details of the incident before, or we appreciate your patience while we investigated the details of the incident before making a statement. It is worth noting that we did clear with police the details of this in asking, was this a stabbing? And police said yes, but other reports indicate that uh, he was wounded by, with a, uh, a puncture wound. He suffered a puncture wound. So we don't know exactly what happened, what kind of a weapon. Was it even a weapon? Was it perhaps a, just a broken glass? I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just guessing sure. what would classify as a puncture wound. And the fact that he's okay and was at practice yesterday. So it's not up yet, but the latest edition of the Blue Bomber podcast with uh, yours truly and Doug Brown. We discussed this a little bit uh, when we recorded the podcast yesterday, just this whole idea of nothing good happens after midnight. And there are a lot of coaches that stress that with their players. You know, think about where you are. Think about what you're doing. You are a magnet uh, for good things and potentially bad things as a professional athlete. There are people out there that look to make a statement when uh, professional athletes are in a building and when there's too much alcohol consumed and or other incentives to get involved. Uh, you know, there are lots of reasons that guys get into fights at bars. Mm-hmm. And um, when people know who you are, sometimes that can keep you out of trouble. Other times it'll get you into trouble. Yeah. Well, uh, when I used to go to nightclubs, I would always go to the Canada Inns clubs going back 20 years and it didn't, it didn't matter if it was Canadians, it was the bars downtown as well. And like clockwork, once the bar let out at 2 a.m., there was always a fight. Oh. Always. I don't know what the culture is now. I haven't been to a nightclub, at, especially at closing time in years. The la- I think I've been to a nightclub once in the last decade, and that was 441 Main after the Winnipeg Nightlife and Lifestyle Awards back in uh, on Good Friday. And I, was, I didn't stay until close, but... The people there seemed pretty chill, so I would imagine there wasn't a brawl at the end. But it was like alcohol and guys wanting to get girls tends to and when they don't get girls, they get into fights, and sometimes they get into fights uh, because they both want to get the same uh, girl. <laughs> was not expecting that from you this morning, Brett McGarry. I just, uh, I can't help it. I can't resist when this song comes on. With this song, by the way, the Backstreet Boys played at Bell MTS Place last night. It an almost sold out show. By every single picture I saw, and my wife was there last night, and she said, it was packed. Yeah. She I, was shocked at how many people were there. I actually had a line on tickets for that. It was going to go, but my girlfriend's not, uh, she's under the weather, so we we passed on it. Oh, well, that's too bad. It is, but uh, since we were going to do one thing here, and we're going to get to some of that in a moment, but uh, 
like I whenever I hear that song, which first of all, if you listen to the lyrical content, it doesn't make any sense. Like I, what does that even mean? I want it that way. Like and the the Backstreet Boys actually, I think they tried to rework that song so that it made sense. Oh really? And it didn't. They they didn't like it. It didn't work like the way that it sounded. It just whatever reason they just so went, they just went with it. They just kept the lyrics the way they are because it's right. kind of a nonsense song, but. In spirit of that song, and in spirit of one of our favorite shows, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, <laughs> they did maybe my favorite bit on a sitcom ever, which I'll just play for you here. It requires no setup. So, do you recognize any of these men? I was hiding in the bathroom stall, so I didn't see his face, but I heard him. He was singing along to the music at the bar. Do you remember what he was singing? I think it was that song, I Want It That Way. Backstreet Boys, I'm familiar. Okay. Number one, could you please sing the opening to I Want It That Way? Really? Okay. You are my fire. Number two, keep it going. The one desire. Number three. Believe when I say. Number four. I want it that way. Tell me why. Ain't nothing but a heartache. Literal chills. It was number five. Number five killed my brother. Oh my god, I forgot about that part. <laughs> Police lineup breaks into song only on Brooklyn Nine Nine. So if you were at the show, let us know how it went. You text us 204-780-6868 because Backstreet, like we're going on over like close to twenty five years, I think, since they've been around. Maybe even longer. Well, the first time I saw them would have been in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, at the old Winnipeg Arena, and then I saw them again in Grand Forks at uh, what do they call that barn? Uh, their Alara Center. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they're very good. They're very good in concert. We've got it going on. It was in 1995, peaked at number 69 on the Billboard Hot 100, <laughs> and yeah, so they've been around for oh, well over two decades. Here is the age-old question, though, Brett McGarry. I want you to answer it for me: Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? Backstreet Boys. You didn't even think about it. No, no. I remember when NSYNC first popped up, I thought, who are these interlopers? Mm-hmm. These wannabes, these copycats. <laughs> same producer, same writer, same yeah. guy cashing the checks. <laughs> yeah, it was the same. It was the exact same team. It was that uh, that Swedish team who wrote all of those pop songs. But uh, yeah, let us know. 204-780-6868. I am hoping that they'll do another Vegas residency because I would like to go see them at some point eventually. Uh, but so we want to switch gears. Again, let us know if you're at the show. Text us 204-780-6868. Yesterday, we were telling you about that huge warehouse fire. We often say no one was hurt in the fire in our business when reporting on big fires, but that doesn't mean no one was hurt by the fire. And many lives were disrupted yesterday when that warehouse on Jarvis went up in flames. Again, if you want to see pictures and video that Greg took on his way into work, you can go to 680CJOB's Instagram, which once again I'm having problems locking into this morning, so we haven't updated it. But Kelly Moore, sitting in on Hal Anderson Afternoons yesterday, spoke to some people who were affected by the blaze. Tara Everett is the owner of Canoe Coworking, and she was getting ready to set up shop in that warehouse. First... What is Canoe Coworking? Going to be Manitoba's first Indigenous and allied co-working space. And the idea behind that is it's a collaborative workspace environment. So it's breaking the barriers, letting people either start or maintain their small businesses, have access to amenities like meeting rooms, uh, training, offices, partnerships. And it would be a first in Manitoba and the largest in the city. So it was, uh, it is going to be an amazing space once we find a new space yeah (laughs) so 276 jarvis runs the entire city block length of jarvis down schultz to sutherland and i would have been occupying what was the entire third floor of the space on sutherland facing this the rail yards yeah and so it would have been about twenty thousand square feet 
wow, that's not uh, <laughs> yeah. that's not a little office. No, it's not a little office. It was going to be a big office for a lot of people. It's really been building up steam recently as we've kind of selected our space and built the community around it. And really the people at the core is uh, the small and mid-sized business owners that were looking forward to coming into a community space where they could do good work with other people and collaborate and share. So on a daily basis, we were anticipating to see anywhere between 30 to 40 people just in the co-working space alone. And then uh, if there was conferences or training or permanent tenants, then you could see that number go up. Now, they were in the process of moving in. She got the keys just two weeks ago. Figures within three months, the operation would have been up and running. She hadn't gotten to know too many people in the building yet, but knows that people like painter Eleanor Bond, who is known around the world, was one of the people who stored paintings there, resulting in years of work being destroyed in an instant. Tara also says this isn't the first time her business has been displaced. The first space she was looking at just wasn't the right fit. So... Now what? Um, We're looking, depending on how many people, a minimum of 10,000 square feet. But what was also always in the books and now is going to be our focus is having pop-up events where we can bring the community together in different local restaurants or businesses that want to host And that way we're able to still serve the community until we find our new home. And then just after the 2.30 news, Kelly spoke with a pair of musicians affected by the fire. One of them, Josh Bedry, here's his reaction to the fire. We lost our gathering spot, I guess you could say. There's hours and hours poured into rehearsing, recording, writing, um, just hanging out. It's, um, we we just lost our space. The equipment... That is astronomically expensive, but uh, but we also lost our, our gathering spot. And when you say our gathering spot, how many musicians are, are we talking about here? Uh, I believe there was about 15 of us mm-hmm. at the time of the fire. What did you lose personally, Josh? Some amplifiers. I lost a brand new bike. Um, there was various you know pedals and things that I had stored away. I lost... Uh, some personal items. Mm-hmm. We use the space as, as personal storage as right. well as uh, as uh, a re- rehearsal space. You know, a lot of people forget, Brett, that that it was artists that really kickstarted the redevelopment of the of the West Exchange. You know, art space and different buildings that artists would use as studio space because it was cheap. It was accessible. It wasn't necessarily overdeveloped. And something like this was probably going to be really, really good for this neighborhood. When I was on the scene yesterday morning, early yesterday morning, a couple of people told me there's a whole bunch of bands that used to practice in that space. They didn't know about that community space that uh, Tara was setting up at that point, obviously, because it was still in the works. So uh, just a big loss, not only to the arts community overall, but I think for that particular community uh, north of the, the CPE yards there, uh, something that, that might have been altering for the neighborhood because artists coming into an area, super awesome for a neighborhood, good for the economy, redevelopment, all those opportunities are now potentially lost in this fire. There is a GoFundMe campaign that's been launched. It's called Warehouse Fire Threatens Musician Livelihood in the wake of this. And if you want to read more about this, you can go to cjob.com. It's uh, one of the stories front and center on the homepage. The headline there, Astronomical Loss of Musical Equipment in Warehouse Fire, But Artists Vow to Move Forward. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back in a couple of weeks. Traffic notes, stalled semi, median lane, southbound Route 90, just after the bridge at Taylor. So again, Route 90, southbound, just after the bridge at Taylor, stalled semi in the median lane. So we want to talk right now about smart technology. And Greg found something here. This is on a website called Engadget.com. Pampers gets into smart diapers With Lumi, it's an all-in-one system for taking care of your newborn. That's right, the smart diaper wars have begun. So Pampers unveiled Lumi, which is an all-in-one connected system that includes two activity sensors for diapers, a Logitech camera fashioned into a Wi-Fi baby monitor, and an app 
that wraps everything together, and it follows Huggy's adoption of the Monet smart diaper sensor in Korea. In addition to just telling you when a diaper is wet, Pampers activity sensors can also track your baby's sleep, which is something that this the author of this article says something I've always found tough to do manually. So we wanted to know how far is too far for smart tech. <laughs> what do you mean? Had a hard time doing what manually? Tracking your baby's sleep, I guess. I, I suppose. I don't have a problem with the sleep monitor side, but really, you don't know when baby needs to be changed? Don't they kind of cry when they're wet? That's my recollection. Kelly, you're getting reintroduced to that. Yeah, they they, uh, they, they cry to let you know when they're wet or they're hungry. Right, one so. or the other, right? Do we yeah. have to put a little monitor on their belly now so we can hear their belly growling so um, that we know whether they're wet or hungry? Careful, because that's the next thing. Yeah. Could I just give it away? <laughs> just, I, that's, I'm, I mean, I'm so hesitant to suggest any dumb smart tech because it'll be the next thing. So I'm... Yeah. Uh, I, I, I know you guys uh, had this on the, the show not too long ago about the robot umpires. You know, and and I, I'm thinking, you know, when there's a mound discussion or when there's a plunking, you know, the the mound ro- uh, the the umpire robot's going to go and break that up. Mm, you know, I don't think so. And I, I still, you know, these uh, driverless cars. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I, I there, there's some things that I don't think you mess with. That's all. Yeah, the driverless cars that scares yeah. me. But I I just wonder how much art like. I think technology obviously is great and we can sure. use it to help us out and, and track things that we might not normally track. Like there are so many apps where you can track virtually everything. And as long as you do it on a consistent basis, then it can help you down the road. But I, are we just relying too much on technology to the point where like when things that we I often find with apps as I'm punching in the information, I think I, this I can keep track of this easier just using my brain. Yeah. And, and uh, maybe I should do that. You know, my, my grandpa would go over to his house, and uh, my baba still does this a little bit, but uh, you would see the, the different sticky notes on yeah. the fridge of all the different chores that needed to be done when, or you'd look at their calendar, change the filter on the furnace, and all clean the gutters, all the different things that, that needed to be done. I like the idea of having it all in one app. One of our guests yesterday said uh, on Sunday when I approached him to come on the show, can you send me a meeting request so I can keep all my all my appearances organized? Yeah. Absolutely, I'm prepared to do that. So I'm on the fence like as whether where the line is for too much. I, I, I As much as I'm making fun of it, I don't think it's a horrible idea. No, but I, I just hear this article and I think, is there any other period in human history? No. When the sentence, the smart diaper wars have begun, would make any lick of sense. Is there any any other period in, in human history where that would result in anything? Now, having said that, I would be all in favor of a smart microphone that filters out any time Brett McGarry sings to Backstreet Boys. I'd be 100% in favor of that. So smart technology can get me that. 10 out of 10. Tell me why. <laughs> It's not here yet, Tristan. Well, yeah. No, I know. I know it's okay. So you can do it for a little while, but I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be there sometime. One of our listeners just text, texted us, currently at HSC, there are driverless floor cleaners. Like Roombas running around yeah. the hospital? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's been around that? for a while. What driverless? Oh, I guess. Like those big Zambonis where they clean the floor? I've never seen those uh, moving around without... An individual, a human being on the back driving them? No, I'm trying to think, actually. I think they've been around for, I mean, not super long, but maybe a couple years. I'm just surprised to hear that they're at HSC, but that, because the Roomba's been around for over a decade, and that whole concept to expand it into something bigger. A Roomba's the size of a Frisbee. These things right. are like the size of a... They're a small a, Zamboni. They're a small Zamboni, yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, no, I recall, and I, I can't remember where, but I do recall seeing like a video on YouTube about how they were being used in... Where was I? I think it was an arena in the U.S. somewhere, and it was really cool, and that was a few years ago already. So for them to be at large facilities like that, that's probably not much of a surprise. See, that's smart technology yes. used well, I, I think. I was just going to say, yeah, that, that would be something that I think you get on board with. When you remove the he- human element of tending for your baby, and I, I, I don't know.
CGOB.com. Our question of the day has to do with what is the biggest issue in the upcoming provincial election. We've been talking about crime and discuss, discussing for almost a full year uh, the fact that crime was on the rise in our city, not just violence among gangs and those who lead a life of crime and associated activities, but crime which was starting to affect citizens at random. Here's a text message we got in the last hour, Brett. In regard to property crime, I slept with my window open on Saturday night. Before 5 a.m. on Sunday, I heard a quiet whistle down my street. Seconds later, I heard a similar whistle from the opposite direction. I thought this was very strange as it certainly wasn't a bird whistle. As I was looking out my bedroom window, I heard the whistle again. Mere seconds later, a young man had jumped my neighbor's fence and landed a few feet from my window. I was so shocked. I yelled. He swore at me, and they both ran away. They were checking vehicles for cash. Sometimes people forget to lock their doors. Crime of opportunity. This was in Westwood. The following night, several buildings, as well as a church, were tagged with spray paint. These are stories that we hear all the time. We hear them every weekend. Some people will say, don't lock your doors anymore. Don't leave anything of value in your car, because if you lock them, you're going to end up with a smashed window. With the release of the latest crime statistics, more questions are being asked about how to combat this black mark on our community. The crime situation is at least partially as a result of a health crisis, a game-changing drug addiction emergency. Richard Cloutier here with Police Chief Danny Smythe. And in all your years on the job, chief and otherwise, has 2018 and the first half of 2019 been the worst? I don't know if it's been the worst, but it's been a game-changer for... For our frontline people, for sure. I mean, at different times in my career, there were things that that happened, whether it was gangs, whether it was crack. Well, now we've been introduced to another game changer with with, uh, the meth crisis. You've said you can't police your way out of this, yet there are things that can be done now to help solve or mitigate the problem. What are well, your top ones? I think, you know, we need to have a balanced approach here. So, you know, we're doing our our, our share to disrupt the, the trafficking that's going on. But people need access to treatment, and they can't get access to treatment if they don't have a safe place, a safe shelter for those that want to be on the volunteer side, or a detox. You know, we kind of do that uh, with alcohol now, uh, you know, the Martha facility is a detox center where people are detained in a short term until the uh, influence of alcohol, uh, until they're safe to be on their own. We need something similar to that with meth. There's been talk about that. You've been privy to conversations. Has anybody stepped up and said, we're going to fund it? No, I mean, we've been, you know, they put together some pretty good recommendations in the latest uh, report on illicit drugs. I think now we need to see some commitment on some of these. The Minister of Justice for the province of Manitoba is Cliff Cullen. He joined Richard and Julie on the news yesterday. He had an announcement. Whether he intended to make that announcement on CJOB yesterday afternoon or not is something only he knows for certain. Minister, you you have the power to do something. Well, actually, uh, we just, through Cabinet, just uh, allocated money to the, the Main Street project. So we're actually going to be expanding that particular facility. So we approved 120 beds of that facility. Uh, so that will allow them to uh, to go ahead with the expansion. Uh, and again, that's a good resource for them. And then uh, looking at enhanced treatment facilities at that particular project as well. So we've given money to the Main Street project. Uh, this will allow them to proceed with their uh, the renovations. So we're going to have additional capacity at the Main Street project for, for these types of individuals. That'll help, sir. It's uh, It's a big challenge. It's a complicated challenge. There's no silver bullet. Uh, that's why we're approaching on, on so many different fronts and, and taking a cross-government approach to this. Is there a formal announcement coming forth on this? Minister, will there be a formal announcement in the days ahead about Main Street or because of the blackout, because of the election, that this has quietly been done? Uh, it's It's been quiet. We, you know, as a government, can't... Uh, can't make those announcements, but... Uh, I think well, we just did. We now. just did, Minister. <laughs> I'm sorry? We just did. We just did. So uh, that this is a positive step in the right direction. All right, 120-bed facility Main Street project. Can you put a dollar figure on that? 
Well, for us, in terms of operating costs, it's, it's about an extra $400,000. And this is new? This is new today? This is new money? This is just approved by Cabinet and Treasury Board? That is correct. And will this be open and ready? Are we talking six months? Or are we talking three months, a year? I'm optimistic this will, this will happen fairly quickly, but I, I will have to defer to the Main Street Project for that. Um, you know, we're also putting more money in policing than ever before. Uh, we've committed to a, a policing and public safety strategy here in Manitoba, and we think that will have positive outcomes for Manitobans as well. Now, the leader of the official opposition in Manitoba is Wab Canoe. Here's what he had to say. What the Minister of uh, Justice is talking about here is only actually a small part of what the Main Street Project has asked for, and it's only a small part of what the experts who are on the front lines of this uh, addictions crisis are saying is needed. And so after uh, a few years of this government failing to respond to the degree necessary for us to get a handle on this meth crisis in in Winnipeg, uh, I'm wondering why are they still hedging? Why are they still coming with uh, the bare minimum here? The consensus seems to be that crime will be the number one issue in the upcoming election. Is it for you? Question of the day at CJOB.com, as Greg mentioned, brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. What is the number one issue for you in the upcoming provincial election? Crime and meth, deficit reduction, health care reforms, Education review, and so far at cjob.com, 50% say crime and meth, 50% deficit reduction, no votes yet for health care reforms or education review. You can cast your vote at cjob.com. We did our best to set the table for you over the past week or so. Yesterday, crime statistics for Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the rest of Canada were released. Yeah, and as the Blue Bombers are at the top of the CFL standings, Winnipeg is number one in several less than enviable uh, statistics. Winnipeg's crime index is up 10% year over year compared to the rate of 1.9% across the country, almost eight times as much in Winnipeg than it is across the, the land. Statistics Canada released released their annual crime severity index Monday, and the results show Winnipeg with a significant spike. 2017, the crime severity index was rated at 108.48. In 2018, that number jumped to 119.43. The violent crime index for Winnipeg also went up four percentage points to 161.44. Here is Winnipeg Police Service Chief Danny Smythe. And as expected... Crime rates remain high in this jurisdiction. Uh, Violent crime rates remain high and have not improved uh, in 2018. And I can tell you that we're halfway through 2019 and things are getting worse. In particular, robberies have shot up about 10%. And that's about a 45% increase over the last five-year average. Um, We're seeing an increase in personal robberies and we're seeing an increase in commercial robberies. Property crime has risen by a startling 19%. And with the exception of arson, I think every category that we track has gone up significantly. In Manitoba, the crime index is up almost 6%. Violent crime is up almost 6%. And that's the highest in Canada at 169.80 for violent crime, although the overall rate in the country has dropped. Manitoba is also the highest in homicide rates for provinces with 55 homicides in 2018, a rating of four, just over four. In the territories, some people might argue uh, it's, it's, it's higher there, but the percentage ratings are significantly higher, and that's because of their smaller populations. As we've been mentioning, the number one story, and now by a landslide again, is the um, fact that Winnipeg Blue Bombers wide receiver Chris Matthews, who missed last Friday's game with a finger injury, was stabbed at a local restaurant bar on Saturday night. We like segues around here. This isn't really uh, the two stories we wanted to tie together. The city has done so much, and it's not just my opinion, to make Winnipeg more attractive for outside investment 
tourism and a place for young people to stay and even move to from other places in Canada. Here is Mayor Brian Bowman. It's very difficult to imagine how we can think of Manitoba becoming one of the most improved provinces when Manitoba's crime rates rank as the worst in Canada. Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham visited with Cliff Cullen, the province's justice minister, yesterday on the news. And the question Richard had, are you prepared to fund more boots on the ground? We've had that discussion. And just last week, I had the chief of police from across the province in. And we talked about how do we make sure that the resources are available for the frontline work that they need to do. So we're going to have further discussions about that. And I will say we are so impressed by the frontline workers, both the police and paramedics, EMS people, uh, doing great work out there in the streets. And we appreciate the work they do. We are going to work cooperatively to uh, try and find positive solutions for this. Question for you this morning. Will crime, does crime already define who we are as a city? Are we prepared to allow it to do just that or... What would you like to see us do to fight back? Question of the day at cjob.com, brought to you by Credit Aid. Helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992, visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. What is the number one issue for you in the upcoming provincial election? 43% say crime and meth, 37% say deficit reduction, 20% say health reforms, and education review so far with no votes. You can cast your vote at cjob.com. Thank you very much, Tristan Field-Jones, Mackling, and McGarry. In our next segment, the importance of knowing the Heimlich Maneuver after a disturbing video out of, was that Australia, Greg? It was actually out of Greece, Brad. Oh, was, oh I'm, I'm clearly mixing up something. We got a text earlier from, oh no, it was the meth thing you told me about, an Australian uh, drug dealer or something hit a police car. Crashed into a police car. <laughs> he had $140 million worth of meth on him. That's right. <laughs> That's not from The Onion either. We'll share that with you later on this morning. Uh, but one of the big news stories at cjob.com, actually the top story right now, is the story uh, that we've been telling you all morning that Chris Matthews had been the victim or has been the victim of a stabbing Saturday night. And even the most casual of Blue Bomber fans have been wondering if he's okay. And, uh, well, more on why he didn't play last Friday and the 5-0 and start of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who are leading the CFL. I, I fully expect him to... To, as I said, to be a part of us winning football games this year. It's just, in this case, um, we decided to go uh, another route. And, um, you know, I think the guys performed well. Hard to argue with the route you went. Kenny Lawler's the route you went. And uh, I think anybody who wants to be objective about it would have to say, hey, how do you take him out of the lineup? Yeah, we've got a lot of depth this year. The the, the standard for... Uh, the next bunch of guys in is very high. That was Blue Bomber head coach Mike O'Shea on last night's Coach's Show with Bob Irving every Monday night right here on The Voice of the Bombers, CJOB. Next Monday, uh, the Blue Bombers head coach will be in Guelph for the show as the Blue and Gold play their next two games in Southern Ontario this Friday in Hamilton versus the East leading 4-1 Tiger Cats. And a week Thursday against the Argos in Toronto before what's likely to be a, cl- a crowd essentially made up of family and friends of players and coaches and former Winnipeggers cheering for the Blue Bombers. The, the Argos are not very good and they don't have a lot of fans in case you don't know what I'm referencing there. Instead of coming all the way home in between games, Coach O'Shea explains why his team will stay put for a week. Uh, the logic is you're saving two flights, you're gaining extra days, because if you if you take those flights back or if you have to wait overnight to get a flight out of a, a, a community, mm-hmm. um, you're you're missing a portion of a day. So you do that twice because you'd be flying back to Winnipeg, then flying back to Ontario. So, um, y- you know, the, the budget is almost a, a wash in terms of uh, staying in southern Ontario, staying in Guelph uh, for, for six days rather than our five days, rather than flying back and forth a couple of times. So what, what can the benefits of that be from your perspective? Well, you, you save prep time for sure. The players, uh, you know, no matter what happens, going up to 36,000 feet and coming back down, you get dehydrated. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of, of inefficiency to that. Um, 
you know, at airports and everything. So, uh, and then um, obviously the the other benefit is being on the road together for an extended period of time allows the players to just to be around each other longer and eat together and hang out and go to the movies and whatever they would do in town here. Now they're doing it in a different different place, but now they have to do it together, right? So they're. Yep. Um, it's more team-centric. The play of Matt Nichols has been one of the key factors to the Blue Bombers' hot start. On Friday, Nichols completed a team record 19 consecutive passes in the team's 31-1 to win over Ottawa. What's been the key to Nichols finding, in some people's view, another gear? It's protection. It's the read. It's the receivers hitting the correct depth at the right time. Matt seeing the pitchers very clean, putting the ball in the right spot the accuracy he has to throw with and if the accuracy is not off it's the receiver making a great grab having sticky hands so um, there's so many things that go into that I mean it all runs through the quarterback but each other person on the field at the time has a job to do and if they're doing their job then these things work out but uh, Matt Matt was on you know and once again he sees the field very well he processes uh, the plays very quickly gets through his reads and puts the ball you know in that run, put the ball where it needed to be. A lot of people are saying we're seeing a different Matt Nichols this year, uh, different from last year. Two years ago, it's more like he was two years ago and different from last year. Do you think there's anything to that in your eyes? No, I'm around him every day, so I think it's maybe a... Um, On the field, I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm around him every day, so I, I, I just see Matt. He's, you know, I've I've always liked him. I've always... I really respected his game and and the way he um, goes about preparing is very professional. It's top notch. So, um, does he look more confident on the field to you? More decisive than he was last year? No, I you know I don't I don't see it like that. I see him as this is Matt. That's who he is. Yeah, you know. Okay, I've always liked him. I thought he's you know. No, I know you have. Yeah, I know you have. His numbers are so much better than they were last year. They're back to 2017 when he had 28 touchdowns and eight picks. It's He's having that sort of kind of year again. And it wasn't the same last year. So people are saying, well, he's he's back to where he was two years ago. And that's, you know, when you look at the numbers, that's an easy thing to say. Yeah. You know, I'm we're pretty much looking forward and going going ahead, you know. So if he's... You know, there's he'd be able to answer these questions. You know, whether he feels he is or or isn't, but um, I, I see the same same old Matt that that uh, you know everybody in our room has really come to enjoy and and appreciate how good he is. Now the Blue Bombers' defense on the other side of the ball hasn't skipped a beat without star linebacker Adam Bighill. It's difficult to imagine them being more dominant than they have been. Don't worry, Biggie fans. That doesn't mean the Bombers aren't looking forward to having the CFL's 2018 Defensive Player of the Year in the lineup. Is that happening this week, Coach? Uh, you know me, Bob. I'm not talking any lineups until we absolutely have to. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll see on uh, day four. Big Hill's obviously making progress because he was on the field today and, and doing some things which he hadn't done before. Yeah, he's he's been making progress all all along. I mean, that's what uh, rehab does, right? They they get closer and closer. So we'll, uh, as I've said, we'll we'll give them until the last ditch minute to uh, to be available to us and to his teammates, and then uh, we'll make a decision. That's uh, I would say always dis- deciding uh, to make sure the athlete's health is the f- primary concern. Friday evening, Bombers, Ticat, six o'clock. Kickoff, 4 o'clock pregame with Doug Brown, Ed Tate, and, of course, the voice of the Blue Bombers, Bob Irving. They get things set up for you as Winnipeg looks to go to 6-0 and and Hamilton looks to move to 5-1. and Breakfast with the Bombers brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca. A better place for you. So every once in a while, there'll be a video that maybe gets released weeks or months ago. This particular video first showed up on the internet uh, at the end of May of this year, and it depicts a couple on a patio at a restaurant in Greece. And And it's very disturbing because 
you know what you're watching, but it's clear that the individual on the other side of the table, in this case, the woman sitting across the table from her boyfriend or her husband, looking and not understanding that he was actually choking. And he was choking for over a minute until the restaurant owner or manager finally stepped in and gave him the Heimlich maneuver. And there were dozens of people sitting around. Nobody knew what to do. So we are wanted to talk about the importance of the Heimlich Maneuver. We're joined live on 680 CJOB by Brent Fowler, who is Chief Executive Officer at St. John Ambulance. Brent, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. My pleasure. Hey, Brent, uh, thanks for yeah, thanks for doing this. And uh, the whole idea of the Heimlich Maneuver, I, I think maybe a, a lot of us think we know how to do it based on what we've seen in movies or TV shows. But that video that I just outlined, uh, people were very resistant, hesitant, and did not jump into action. Uh, I, I think the message uh, for me is that it's very different to imagine doing something in your mind than it is to do it in actuality. Well, that's true, and I think it's a classic example why it's so important for everyone to take a first aid course. There are a very few simple things that if you know what to do, whether it's someone who's choking or bleeding or whatever the situation may be, a few simple steps can make a huge difference and potentially save, uh, save someone's life. So when it comes to the Heimlich Maneuver, we, this video showed that this man was in distress for over a minute. People had no idea what was going on. So if you're choking... Uh, obviously you can't speak. What can you do to alert people to the fact that you're, hey, I'm choking? So it depends on the situation. Uh, First of all, if a person is choking and they still are able to talk, if they still are getting good air exchange, uh, there really is no need for anyone to to, to intervene at that point. Where we get concerned is if uh, a person can no longer speak and is no longer getting air in, perhaps their lips are turning blue. That's the point where where someone needs help. What happens often is if we're in a, a setting with other people and we start to choke, we want to leave that public setting. We want to go to a private area, uh, a washroom or something in, um, for example, if you're in a restaurant. So it's really important if you're a bystander and you see someone choking, and while they may be okay at the moment, if you see them leave the room, it's really important that you follow them uh, because while they may be getting air in right now, in a, a moment or two, they may no longer uh, be getting air in and they could actually be in life-threatening condition. We're getting a text message here and uh, you can confirm this. So you're the expert on this. Do we not call it the Heimlich Maneuver anymore? Is it called something else now? Well, a lot of people still refer to it as the Heimlich Maneuver, but no, that's not the the correct title. Uh, We call it First Aid for Choking. And what's happened is the the original Heimlich Maneuver has been adapted and changed a lot over the years based on uh, medical science and research. And the current technique, I believe, came into place around 2010. Uh, the original Heimlich maneuver was just abdominal thrusts, but actually science shows that the best chance of removing a, uh, a lodged object is a combination of back blows and abdominal thrusts. Back blows and abdominal, okay, so if you're, let's say you've never taken a, a first aid course, but you have, it, we've, like we all sort of have a general understanding of what the Heimlich maneuver is, but if I am in a restaurant with somebody who starts choking, and I don't have that first aid training, what should I do? So again, it depends whether they're getting air in or not. But if you don't think they're getting air in and they're in immediate distress and you ask them if they can help and they, they, they nod or signal to you that they, they want your help, what you do is you give them five back blows between their shoulder blades and then you give them five abdominal thrusts. And there are particular uh, landmarks and ways of doing that. And that's why it's important that you have a first aid course, how you know exactly how to do it to give the casualty the best chance of getting that object out within a you know a few short seconds. Uh, Brent, my, my uh, great-grandfather was actually knighted under the star of the St. John Cross uh, almost 50 years ago. And so St. John Ambulance, big part of our family and our family history. How can people get involved and how can people make sure they have this, this designation and this training? A number of options. You can go to our website, which is sja.ca. Uh, you can also contact our office, which is uh, 784-7000. 
Uh, we're located right across from Polo uh, Park uh, off Portage Avenue, so a great central location if anybody wants to stop by. Run courses seven days a week, so lots of opportunity to come in and learn how to deal with uh, choking emergencies and other situations. A couple of text messages here. How old do uh, kids have to be to take first aid? Is there a, a cutoff, a starting point? There is, and it depends a lot on the maturity of the child. Uh, we often see kids going into our babysitting kit, uh, course in the 11, 12 uh, range, and then we see them often come back at 14 or 15 to start taking first aid. depends on their maturity level and, and how well they will, will handle the material. What do I do if I'm choking and I'm by myself? Well, that can be a very dangerous situation, and people have died in those situations. If you are choking, uh, we recommend that you cough and cough quite strongly. That often will help dislodge the object. But if you're by yourself and after a few seconds that's not working, I think you need to find uh, someone to help you very quickly, or if nothing else, call 911 and get an ambulance rolling towards you. We actually do teach a, a couple of techniques in our first aid course about how you can try and, and dislodge the object yourself, but it's, it's very difficult to do it yourself. You, you're going to need help at some point. But yeah, because I'm thinking if I'm choking and I can't speak, how am I going to call 911? Well, you can call 911 and you don't have to speak. Uh, 911 operators will send help if there is no one on the end of the phone. And they may be able to hear noise in the background that indicates it is a medical emergency and would send an ambulance as well. Brent Fowler, Chief Executive Officer at St. John Ambulance, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Brent, thank you very much for this. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. 756 on 680 CJOB. If you have any stories about choking that you want to share, 204-780-6868. As we learned this morning, a Heimlich maneuver is sort of an outdated terminology. It's now a combination of abdominal thrusts and back blows, five back blows between the shoulder blades. That makes me even happier that we had Brent on this morning because... This was very definitely the old technique or the technique that, that people know from TV and the movies that has uh, been depicted in this, in this viral video. Twenty years ago today was the official start to the 1999 Pan Am Games in Winnipeg. Actually, competition began the day before, and we see this at the Olympics and other major competitions. They just have so many sporting events they have to start before the actual opening ceremonies. Uh, the world champion canoeist Steve Giles and women's K4 capturing gold medals in the respective events at Lake Minnedosa. Oh, thank God McNabb's not here right now. <laughs> uh, I'm bad enough. I'm beaming with uh, pride as I think about that. There would be many more standout performances by Canadian athletes over the next 17 days. But the biggest buzz in this city was created by Winnipegger Tanya Dubnikov, who would win not one, but two gold medals in short track cycling at that portable, now gone, long gone, velodrome at Red River Exhibition Park. First off, I can't believe it's been 20 years. So thanks for reminding me. It's, you know, part of it seems like it is yesterday. It was yesterday. At the same time, it does seem like it's a, a distant memory. And you know, I think, um, as you mentioned, with the city buzzing, I think that that definitely made it one of the most memorable uh, competitions of my career. And having it at home in Winnipeg, you know, being the flag bearer, winning two gold medals uh, was, was definitely something that's pretty hard to reproduce uh, in an athlete's life. So, yeah, it was one of the highlights for me, for sure. Daniel, what do you remember about those two gold medal performances? You know, I think the, the the biggest memory is, you know, when you're an athlete training and there's always sort of um, some unknowns of, you know, before competition and, and you know, challenges and, and trying to be in the right form and the right shape uh, to the, the best of your ability. And the one thing I remember about that is that everything felt so right um, and, you know, it almost seemed like it was effortless. And so I think that's what I remember the most is that, that everything went so well, the training went so well, the, you know, uh, the teammates and the coaching and, you know, the equipment, everything just worked so well. And even though I did, you know, have to produce a lot of power and a lot of energy to, to do well, but it was just something about everything coming together and it just felt like it was effortless. So it was sort of in that flow state 
Um, and I was able to enjoy it as well. And so that was sort of a special moment to be able to be sort of the pinnacle of your career in terms of strength and power and speed, uh, and then also having the uh, perspective to enjoy it uh, at home in Winnipeg. Yeah, because that's important to being uh, one of the few hometown athletes who have the opportunity to compete in the games. There was a lot of pressure on, on athletes like yourself to, to, to do as well as you possibly could. Yeah, I think that's, that's the sort of, you know, you know, that's always in the back of athletes' minds is who are they competing for, right? And so if you're at home or I, you know, was listening to a podcast the other day about athletes that were competing in the Vancouver Olympics and saying uh, because of it was at home and because, um, you know, there, there wasn't really pressure to perform, it was pressure to be with everybody else. And I think that's sort of what made it uh, so unique. And um, I just remember, I think there was some celebrations, Portage in Maine, uh, you know, months out before the games. And, and I had to be there because I didn't want to disappoint individuals, but I had pneumonia. <laughs> so I remember standing on board and I'm like, this is not good, but there was something about being there that made it important. And I, and I think, you know, having a sickness um, and having to take time off well ahead before the games, it definitely was able to give me the perspective that I needed. Um, and, you know, the body heals, you get over it and you get back to training. And so and sometimes those those are the things that I don't really remember. I just remember the good times. So um, athletes do go through that. And I think pressure is sort of about the, the individual themselves. And, you know, there's always that famous quote about, um, you know, press, pressure is a privilege um, uh, uh, by the famous tennis player. And I think that uh, you got to remember that when you're in that situation, it's definitely a privilege to perform to that. You mentioned you had a chance to enjoy the games. Uh, not only competing, but uh, what what else do you remember of the games? Obviously, being the flag bearer, uh, I would think that would have had to have been one of the highlights. But did you get a chance to get out and see some of the other events? And I guess the other part of that question, Tanya, now, you know, back then there wasn't the same type of social media exposure for athletes that there is now. So d- did people recognize you? Did they come up and want to see your gold medals, you know, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think, uh, but I think that the, the most famous person in Winnipeg was my dad because he was the one that was doing all the talking. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that was quite fun. Uh, but no, it, it was, you know, it felt really safe. And, you know, you'd go out for, I'd go out, you know, to, to once the events were over, we'd go out with our teammates or we'd go out with my family. And, you know, it was just, you know, wonderful times where everyone would get together and celebrate. So it was good times and lots of beverages had and, um, <laughs> Yeah, I saw some of the other events. I can't lie. I saw some volleyball. Um, and what else did I see? I can't remember. I saw, I don't know if I, there was road racing and there was uh, the time trial, but I think we were preparing for it. So I know that I wasn't able to go see Clara race, uh, but she came to the track. Um, we had a good time. Um, I think it was whose birthday was it? It was somebody's birthday. Might have been her birthday or someone brought me a genie's cake because that was one of my favorite things to eat. Uh, so we were eating genie's cake in the middle of the track while uh, some of the other track events went on. So, um, yeah, it was just fun. Uh, once the games were, once the, the competition was over and there was also other athletes from other countries that, you know, you travel around the world and train with. So I think once the competition were done, we all sort of went out together because that was sort of our, our, um, our, our, our group, uh, even though they were athletes from the United States or Cuba or wherever, um, we all went out and did things together to sort of celebrate, uh, celebrate the games as a unit. You know, uh, Tanya Dubnikov, uh, such a great Manitoba athlete. I, I was working up at Silver Star Ski Resort uh, near Vernon, BC. It would have been in the winter of 1994-95. And uh, there was a, a group of high-performance athletes there training at the, at the training facility because it's about a mile high up at Silver Star. And so it's a great place to improve your cardiovascular workouts. And one of the items that they had in their wind-up auction was this signed plaque from Tanya Dubnikov. And it ended up going for about a hundred bucks. Wow. What I didn't know is one of the tables, one of the groups of people I've been looking after all week actually bought it for me as a gift. Instead of giving me a big tip at the end of the week, they bought this thing for me and I still have it hanging in my, uh, in, well, it hangs in my basement now. Wow. Yeah. So it's a kind of a neat 
keepsake, and it was always proud to to talk about Tanya and her accomplishments uh, as a, as a bicycle racer uh, once upon a time. So uh, that brought back really cool memories for me. We're going to talk about finance, and uh, I don't know, finding a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of your own making. Yeah, this is. We've been talking about saving an impressive $100,000 in three years after college. I would think that's not possible, but the person on the phone will tell us not only is it possible, but she did it. Her name is Bola Sokunbi, and she is the author of the newly published Clever Girl Finance, and she joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Bola, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So you saved $100,000 in three years after college. Were you making like a million bucks a year right out of the gate? Or how did did that work? (laughs) I wish. I was actually making $54,000 before taxes in New York City. So it was definitely very far off from a million. But, you know, I made it work. You were sleeping in the subway. (laughs) <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, what, what can you tell us without uh, without not selling any books? Obviously, uh, uh, there's a story here. So th- we, we need to know at least some details about how you managed to do this. And maybe before we get the, into the crux of that, tell us a little bit about what you do and, and, and Clever Girl Finance. Is, is this the basis of the book? Is this uh, the, the saving uh, phenomenon that you achieved? To a degree. So, you know, Clever Well Finance is an online financial education platform for women. And what we do is provide women with financial education so that they can make the best financial decisions for themselves. And I share my saving story, but I also share the saving stories of other women who have accomplished really amazing things so that women know that it is possible to pay off debt, to save, to do big things with their finances. So the basis is really financial empowerment. Are women better at saving than men? Yes, we are. We're also better investors. <laughs> Come on. And, and there are What proof do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so then, so you, I understand you were inspired by uh, your mother who worked really hard to, to lay some groundwork for you to, to go on to success in your life. So what was it that your mom did that helped you kind of get going on this path? Yes, absolutely. My mom was a huge inspiration. Um, she got married very young, got married at the age of 19 with just a high school diploma. And as she started to get older and, you know, grow in her marriage, she started to see things around her that she didn't like. She would see friends getting divorced divorced, or unfortunately lose spouses. And she just never wanted to find herself in that position. So in her mid-30s, after she had had four kids, my mom decided to go back to college to get an undergrad and a master's degree so that she could start to contribute to our household and start to save money. And, you know, growing up watching my mom go to school, take me along to classes, start different businesses, working full time, really inspired me because it showed me that you need to have options, especially because I also got to sit in the corner of our living room and watch my mom console her friends who had no options and nowhere to go when they were going through those difficult situations. So my mom was definitely a huge inspiration to me. You know, we like to have fun, Bola, but on a serious note, this combination of education uh, and financial knowledge uh, really does open up a lot of doors. Why are both so important? Absolutely. Once you know how to manage your money, once you know what to do, then you're able to make those smart decisions, even if you're not making a ton of money, even if you have debt. Once you understand what it is to manage your money, what it is to pay down your debt, how to create those strategies, then you open tons of doors for yourself and you can create opportunities for yourself because you now have that financial knowledge. So did you live like a pauper for three years so to achieve <laughs> saving $100,000? Um, it was very difficult. I lived on a very lean, lean budget, um, you know, very much eating at work, walking through the hallways to see who was having a retirement party or a baby shower. Even though I didn't know you, I'd be like, hey, hi, congratulations. I'll take the free lunch. <laughs> I um, kept my expenses low. I kept my, you know, I, I was basically putting my head to the ground and just saving every way I knew possible. What did that do for you ultimately, never mind achieving that, that, that three-year goal, but in terms of the rest of your life, what, what did it set you up for? So when I initially set out to save, 
I wasn't sure that I would be able to do it, you know, given my salary, um, given the fact that I, I was learning about finances myself at the time. But once I crossed over that 100,000 threshold, it was kind of like a, you know, light bulb, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this. And then it was also, if I could do this, imagine what else I can do. So it was definitely a huge motivator for me. It made, made me feel like I could do anything I put my mind to because I could I could cross that big hurdle, even on my income at the time. So, I, you know, today it has set me up for everything that I've done, saving, saving for my kids, being able to quit my job and run my business, um, provided me with tons of options. Now, just saving the money and putting it in a bank account, obviously would have been impossible. You said you were earning 54000 before taxes, and I'm calculating quickly some taxable uh, income there. So you must have been... forty k. Well, there you go. So you must have been investing some of this money, yes? Yes, absolutely. I was investing in my... Uh, so it was twofold. I was investing in my employer's plan. I was investing outside of my employer's retirement plan. I was also um, investing in myself in the sense that I started a side hustle to help me increase my income, which helped me um, really um, ramp up that savings. So investing was a huge factor to me being able to grow to grow my money to cross over that 100K mark. And what would you say to somebody, like a lot of times people get, they come out of school and they get jobs where they're making like 20, you know, under, not even $30,000 and they still be, mm-hmm. need to be able to afford to pay just for their basic living expenses. So maybe they can't save $100,000 in three years, but can they still save uh, a decent amount? Absolutely. So one thing to keep in mind is that at that early stage of not earning a lot of money, you know, it's not about how much you are saving. It's about the consistency and the habit of saving. Me being able to get to that 100K was saving every single paycheck consistently, even if I was only saving a dollar. There were paychecks where I only had a dollar to save and I would drive to the bank and deposit that dollar. So it's about building the habit and the consistency and start thinking about ways to reduce your income your expenses, but not just that, but also how can you increase your income? Could it be getting a part-time job, starting a side hustle, um, getting out of, out of your comfort zone? Because when it comes to saving, it's not glamorous, uh, but you can do it. So that fifty-four grand was your primary job, but I heard you mention side hustle, and so many people are, are having to do that to find something extra, and it's not brand new. It's not anything that hasn't been around for a long time. I know lots of people, uh, my grandfather always had stuff on the side going but but that's the extra right and that's the stuff that either you can either if you can live off your side hustle and save your paychecks or the other way around uh there's 24 hours in a day and and uh, you only need eight hours of sleep uh, and and maybe less might be your philosophy i don't know share you can sleep on you can work on six hours (laughs) but i definitely agree um you know it's you know, if you're going to get the side hustle, you're going to do the extra things, a part-time job, then you have to have an intention for that income. And for me, it was to save it. So my side hustle was a photography business. And the first year of kind of hustling around nights, every weekend, every evening after work, I made $10,000 from that. And then the second year of doing it, I made $30,000. Um, obviously, I paid taxes and I had to buy equipment, but I focused on saving as much of that money as possible from that side hustle. All right, Bola Sukunbi joining us live on 680 CJOB. She is the author of Clever Girl Finance, Ditch Debt, Save Money, and Build Real Wealth. You can get it online, including online at McNallyRobinson.com. Bola, thank you for this. We appreciate this very much. Thank you so much. Dudes can buy the book too, right, Bola? Oh. Yes. <laughs> I knew the answer. I just wanted to hear it out of your voice. Thanks for your time. You're an inspiration. Can we reach out to you again? We'd love to have you back. Yes, absolutely. Anytime. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.